if you're a private entity and the legislature is giving you the power of eminent domain, that is a privilege, and you need to exercise that privilege with all due respect to the people that are going to be impacted by what you're doing. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Hey, Infrastructure Junkies. Dave and I are still here on site in sunny Scottsdale at the ALICLE 2022 Eminent Domain Conference. And today, for the first time in three seasons, we're branching out. We're going to talk about some oil and gas and some pipeline issues. It's about time, huh, Dave? It is about time. It is about time. And we have a phenomenal guest for you. Today, we are joined by the great Tom Forstier. Yeah, and what you don't know is I met Tom at this very conference back in 2013 when it was held in Miami, and he and I met at a tiki bar, and I realized that I wasn't the only, I was there with my partner, Ross Green, but we weren't the only condemning authority attorneys at that conference. In fact, Tom, who represents pipeline companies in Texas, was also there, and so We kind of hit it off and wound up going to a couple bars over at the Fountain Blue, had a really good time. And then the following year, we met back up in Austin. I don't know if it was the following year. It was one of the following years. We met back up in Austin where Tom and I sampled Pappy Van Winkle bourbon for the very first time Um. and realized we had something else in common. We enjoyed bourbon and the bourbon trail. So might talk about that a little bit as well. For those of you who don't know him, Tom Forestier is a partner at Winstead PC, and he's a member of the firm's business litigation practice group. He served as chairperson of the firm's diversity committee from 2006 to 2010, and as the managing shareholder of the Houston office from 2010 to 2013. Tom is recognized for his experience in representing pipeline companies, electric utility companies, railroads, oil and gas, and other energy companies as well. And we are really lucky to have him on for the show today. All right, Tom, welcome to Scottsdale. How was your trip? It was fantastic. And I can't uh, thank you enough for having me on this program. it is a great honor for me. Dave, you and I have come a long way from the beaches, uh, the South Beach. Uh, That's right. Area in Miami. And we have really upgraded our game. I'm now with uh, having the chance to visit with Kristen, and it, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. No, we're thrilled to have you. You are our first pipeline guest, which is, I mean, it's a shame, really. It's kind of embarrassing we've made it this far without having a pipeline episode, but you, this is a big deal. This is the inaugural pipeline episode. Well, well, Tom, before we got started on this, Tom said, well, if you haven't talked about pipelines, what the heck you been talking about? And I said, well, what's there to discuss about pipelines? Because where I come from, they keep getting canceled. <laughs> Good point. So we had, we had to get a guest from Texas to bring us up to speed here. Well, and I had to go to Miami to find another condemnation lawyer that would actually <laughs> talk to me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Hydrocarbon pipeline project development in Texas and nationally. What does that even mean? So, I mean, we're talking about the backbone, the infrastructure that supports what is now unfortunately commonly referred to as the fossil fuel industry, which I guess makes this sort of the Jurassic Park 
episode, right, Kristen? <laughs> there know. you go. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, I've been accused of being as old as a dinosaur, but obviously in Texas, so much oil and gas production, the need for pipeline infrastructure, particularly over the last 20 years, this is a term we don't like to use typically, but it exploded, right? It exploded, started in North Texas with the Barnett Shale and all the technology around horizontal drilling and directional drilling led to all the shale discoveries. And I always say the pipelines follow the wells. And where people are drilling wells, there's going to be pipelines. And that's what has happened, particularly in Texas, but then it spread to Ohio, spread to Pennsylvania, the Dakotas. And so here we are. We can talk a little bit about how we got to where we are, particularly over the last two years with COVID. Well, let's talk about where we are. Let's start with that and work our way back as to how we got here. Yeah, so really going into 2019, early 2020, people couldn't build pipelines fast enough because people weren't people couldn't drill oil and gas wells fast enough. Remember that phrase, drill, baby, drill? Yes, well, sir. They were mm-hmm. drilling and pipelines were being built. And then in late 2019 and early 2020, even before COVID, there were things happening in the industry at the global level. OPEC was putting a lot of pressure on U.S. producers because they were doing such a great job in West Texas. And lo and behold, we were becoming energy independent, which I'm old enough to remember back in the 70s. I thought that was a really good thing uh, to be energy independent, and OPEC didn't like that. And so then came COVID. COVID killed global demand and all of that, and to some extent, domestic demand, uh, because we were all sitting on our sofas working at home with or without a mask on, I don't know, but pipeline companies ended up killing a lot of their projects and they're terminating them. And nonetheless, there were a number of projects that went forward because once they spend enough money, and we're talking about hundreds of millions and billions of dollars at risk to build these projects, to move product to the market. When they did that, some companies had to see it through to the end, and they did. And that's where we are now is oil and gas prices are back up, up above 80 bucks a barrel, yeah, which is great. Natural gas prices are pretty good too. And they'll be even better if we have another freeze in Texas. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, bite your tongue. <laughs> bite your tongue. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of remains to be seen. I think the oil and gas producers, we refer to that as the upstream. Pipeline is midstream. And you, you're reading every day that the upstream companies, the Exxons, the Shells, the Chevrons, uh, they're showing a lot of discipline in making sure that they don't overproduce. And I think the midstreams are going to follow with being conservative and being careful and not overbuild, but they are ready to build. The midstream companies uh, do very well economically building and operating pipelines. And mids, to be clear, let me be clear for a guy like me who doesn't understand these phrases. Upstream are the big daddies, ExxonMobil, Shell, and I bought stock in ExxonMobil, by the way, during COVID. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. So far, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, cool. Midstream are the, the transport companies, like the pipeline companies? It's the companies that are simply building, usually long-haul transportation pipelines, hundreds of miles from point A to point B, usually in Texas, moving from uh, West Texas or South Texas, and now Northeast Texas, down to the Gulf Coast, where they hit downstream are the refineries. Oh, they're the, I thought they would be like the, the gas station, the refiners. Well, that's the, okay. yeah, the, that's the end consumer or the three of us. Right? <laughs> so we're the down, down, downstream. Yes. All right, got it. Yes. Bottom of the barrel stream. Okay, so I have a question for you. So, Tom, you mentioned the Barnett Shale, and the Barnett Shale is the reason that I am sitting in this chair and in this industry today. 
I was on a different career path and got a call that somebody needed me to run some title. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but okay. And that led to today, long story short. But one thing I was taught very early on when I was in the pipeline realm was you better save because it's always going to crash and there's always, and it did, it did. Do you think that will continue to be the trend where if you are in the pipeline world, it's feast or famine? I think there's going to be peaks and valleys. I think there always will be in the oil and gas business. I had a friend who was president of a major, of the U.S. subsidiary of a major oil and gas company, a global company. And he would say, you got to ride it out. There's going to be good times and there's going to be bad times. And insofar as it affects, for example, anybody, any professional is providing services to the midstream business right away agents, surveyors, appraisers. What the, the thing that I noticed, particularly after the Barnett Shell started to sort of taper off, was you, you lost some right-of-way professionals who were really good, and they had to go do something else. Right. And I've always said this, at least until I met uh, you, Kristen, and learned more about your company, but I've always said it's for right-of-way acquisition, it's about the individual. It's the person. And there are good people who move from company to company. Now, you know, because you know your competitors better than I do it. There's a lot of firms out there with big names and, and what have you. And I always tell clients, don't hire the firm, hire the person. Right? Yes. And they're yes. going to surround themselves with the best talent that they have. Dave, you and I deal with that in the legal business, right? Yes, it's really sir. not about the law firm name. It's about the lawyer. Because at the end of the day, it's individual uh, service, uh, in, uh, individually provided service. That's a great point. And I do know when I was in the business of running title and buying easements, I would go from project to project, like the same handful of people. And maybe they'd even changed companies, but it was the same talent, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom, you've already said the two words together. And are, are there two dirtier words in the English language when put together than fossil fuels right now? Yes, <laughs> eminent domain. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, I'm not sure I would agree with that. The, there is such enormous public pressure against the fossil fuel industry. No, I, I, agree, I agree with that. And of course, national politics plays a big role. And in, in Texas, fossil fuel is, I mean, Kristen, you know, I mean, that's what Texas is all about. It's oh, not, yeah. Houston, the economy in Houston is so dependent on that. But as we were talking about before, unless you're from Louisiana or Texas or Oklahoma or New Mexico, maybe parts of Pennsylvania, you don't care all that much about what's happening to people who might be losing their jobs or being furloughed or whatever in the the fossil fuel industry. It it has a very negative connotation. Yeah, and and for good reason. I mean... What it's done to our planet, I don't think you can deny that, and I don't want to make that a political statement. That's my personal opinion. But the fact of the matter is we are nowhere near prepared to obviate fossil fuels at this point. Like not even close. It's like fantasy land, right? It's like I would like to ride a unicorn too. Right. Right. They're extinct, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Jurassic Park. Uh, and, I, and, and Dave, to that point, I will tell you, and I've, my wife and I have three sons, and our oldest son is uh, a grown man. He's 30 years old, and he was the first one to tell me, because he has a younger brother, our middle son, who works for a natural gas pipeline company yeah. in Houston. I have made a living off the oil and gas industry my entire legal career. 
my oldest son lives in Chicago. He's not a lawyer. He's not in the oil and gas business. And he's like, Dad, you got to get over the oil and gas business. Really? This, this, <laughs> like, son, know. that puts you through school, yeah, okay? Exactly. Right. I say, we need, you need to be thinking about transitioning. He hasn't told me to go buy an electric car or an electric, it'd only be, Christian, it'd only be an electric pickup truck, right? In right, Texas. right. But, and I don't know that I ever could buy an electric car. Some of my clients would fire me, but I, I, I hear that. And I, even the Exxon Mobiles of the world have come around and said, yeah, we've got to deal with uh, climate change and, and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great thing. I just, and this is probably a topic for a different podcast, but from where I sit, it doesn't look like the infrastructure is ready for it and it doesn't look like the technology is ready for it. So what can we do in the meantime? We're going to need the fossil fuels. Does that mean we... We hold steady, keep status quo. We don't build any more pipelines, which means that you're, you're going to need to retire. Mm-hmm. Or is it either expand or bust? Right. The irony of this whole discussion is natural gas. And we say oil and gas. The gas right. is natural gas. Natural gas is considered to be sort of the bridge energy, right? And, and I think in some places, maybe in Europe, it's considered to be green energy. Natural gas is green energy. Right. Right. And natural gas is used to generate electricity, right? So to your point, Dave, it's not like we can just flip a switch and all of a sudden, number one, you're not electric vehicles. Where are the, where are the charging stations? Right. And where's that's its own infrastructure. Yeah. And I, and I know that the infrastructure bill that passed is supposed to address some of that, but... Well, you, we did an episode last season after that horrible winter storm <laughs> with Krista Castaneda talking about why that happened and the whole cycle of like natural gas produces electricity, which powers the natural gas facility, which produ- and then it's like we're doomed. We were doomed in that situation. So right. that's a fascinating element to me, and and the idea of natural gas as a green energy source is fascinating to me as well. And I know my my dad has asked for years, like, why are we not all driving natural gas vehicles? Like, well, where do you fill it up? I mean, it, what? <laughs> right. That's a right. great idea, but. No, that's right. And so from an eminent domain perspective and a land acquisition perspective, and Kristen, with your experience in Barnett Shell, you, I know you'll uh, recall this, but when you go and talk to a landowner about putting a natural gas pipeline on their property. If they understand the difference between natural gas and crude petroleum. They understand that natural gas pipelines if breached, that's the verb we like to use, breached. If breached, there's going to be an explosion. Right. There's not going to be a leak. There's not going to be a contaminated creek or river. There's right. going to be an explosion. Right. So, and look at it from, from that perspective. If that's our bridge energy source and it's green, we're still, we're always going to have that risk. We're always going to have the risk. Now, how about the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill? Will that... From where you sit, and again, that's another topic for another episode, from where you sit, is that going to be a boost to the pipeline industry or is it more focused on green energy? I don't think it's going to be a boost to the oil and gas uh, business, not Mm. directly and maybe not even indirectly. I think the whatever, and I haven't read the whole bill. I've certainly listened to a lot of people talking about it. I know I've read it twice. It's pretty good. Is it one of those bills that you have to read it to understand what's in it? No, I've read a couple articles about it. That's about it. Yeah. No, I, I think there's, you know, the, the United States infrastructure system, bridges, roads, et cetera, all deteriorating over time. And so 
whatever portion of that bill is actually dedicated to legitimate infrastructure, that's great. And I'm fully supportive of it. And there's going to be opportunities. We talk about transitioning right-of-way agents from one type of project to the other. There's going to be opportunities like that, plenty of opportunities like that for folks that, that support infrastructure projects. But, I mean, I think the intent of that bill is consistent with the intent of the current administration, which is to uh, lessen and reduce our dependency on oil and gas production. Okay, well, unfortunately. Well, here's the tough question because you can't have all easy questions, Tom. Here's a right. tough question. Is that a good or a bad thing? As, a, as an attorney who's made his living from representing pipeline companies, good or bad thing? So uh, I'll answer the question and I'm going to explain the answer. I think, and I don't want anything negative to happen to any industry, but especially the oil and gas industry. But as you get older, your perspective on things changes. And I have two sons that are married. We don't have grandchildren yet, although my wife is putting a lot of pressure on folks for that to happen. <laughs> and the long-term view is we ought to be exploring every energy source that we have. And if there are climate change issues that need to be addressed, and this is probably not the last infrastructure bill or federal funding effort that we're going to see that's going to try and take the country in a different direction. For me, personally, what was so significant was when, and you've seen this on the ExxonMobil Board of Directors, I've represented ExxonMobil my entire career. In fact, I moved to Houston from Austin, Texas in 1990. No lawyer does that. Most lawyers spend their entire lives in Houston trying to figure out a way to go to Austin. Right. Right. <laughs> I moved to Houston principally because of the legal work I was doing for, for Exxon. And when they started putting uh, new directors on their board, and they started looking at carbon capture projects and other types of projects to reduce the carbon footprint, that's when I knew the world was changing. And Dave, whether I like it or not, I think it's going to happen. Right. No, you're right. We don't have any control over that. So let's talk about the work you've done in the past representing pipelines, midstream, upstream, whatever the case may be, but where you're acquiring right-of-way on behalf of pipeline companies. Right. Okay? And that's something that's a little bit different. I've done a lot of work for DOT, done work for some transmission companies. So th this is a, a little bit new from where I sit. Are there issues that are unique in your practice representing pipeline companies, oil and gas, et cetera, that maybe the rest of us wouldn't see? Yes. That the I think there's a couple of things. One is everybody understands that if, they may not like you, but if a highway needs to be built or expanded, everybody gets to use that highway, right? <laughs> if an electric transmission line needs to be built or expanded or a system needs to be expanded, people sort of understand that they'll probably one way or the other be able to tap into that, that, that source of power and the reliability that the, that the system will bring, the new system will bring. People do not see a direct contact between a pipeline crossing their ranch or their property and, you know, the, the <laughs> oil and gas that they use, even the gasoline that they buy at the gas station. It's too hard to map it out, how it goes to refineries and maybe in Beaumont, Southeast Texas, and it gets refined. And then somehow it unfortunately gets put in another pipeline and it gets shipped across the state or across the country so mm -hmm. that it can get to gas stations. That nexus is hard to explain to people. You've made a career of dealing with this. 
Now, and, and I have, and this is why I have a lot of respect for the right-of-way agents. I always say, you know, when we get involved with a project, we will meet with the land acquisition team. It's the first thing we do. And we sit down and we talk about, okay, anybody know any of these landowners that we're going to be crossing? Because there's a lot of landowners, Christian people, they're well-known. Right. right. And there's a history. And we talk about how we're going to uh, approach them and talk with people and talk to them with respect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have said this before. I've said this in mediation many times. I've said, look, I know, and I always look at the land and I'll say, I know you literally were minding your own business when somebody came, (laughs) (laughs) contacted you and said, we need to put a pipeline easement across your property. Okay. And so we always approach it from that perspective. We're not, uh, and Christian, you've heard this before. Some clients will say, well, we're going to parallel this other pipeline. You know, we're we're <laughs> right. doing them a favor. And I'm like, well, some landowners will tell you, not only did I not want the first one, I really don't <laughs> want the second one. Yeah. And so, Dave, the landowner relation component of it is so important. And on the front end, and I always tell clients this, I'm like, look, and this ties into my, my point I made earlier, I said, I can recommend right-of-way acquisition firms for you. And I can also recommend ser- surveyors, and I can recommend appraisers. In fact, I've got to live with the appraiser, right? Yeah. Right? If yep. things don't get resolved, I'm the one that's got to present them and endorse them. But, but I said, you can make whatever decisions you want to make about right-of-way agents. But if they don't do, I guess the less successful they are, the more work I get. <laughs> So let me me just be real frank about that. But I'm trying to, I'm making recommendations for people that I think are, have a track record. Most right-of-way agents can tell you from Mm -hmm. their last project what percentage of the total number of landowners or their total mileage or length of the pipeline they acquired by agreement. Right. Right. The last thing you want to do is they they don't want to admit that they had to turn it over to legal. Right, right. Right. Well, it feels to me like if they have to turn it over to legal, that's not a good thing. And I've done a lot of highway work. And I'll tell you one thing, Tom, I've yet to meet another human being on this planet that likes to sit in traffic. And even though I can't in my opening statement say, hello, Mr. and Ms. Juror, do you like to sit in traffic? If not, vote for us right. for your verdict. I can't say that, but they all know that. Right. And in the larger jurisdictions, we tend to do better on highway cases in larger jurisdictions where people have to sit in traffic than the smaller jurisdictions where it's foreign to them and generally the road is going through them right. to get elsewhere. Right. Yep. Now, so I feel like I'm like starting out on second base or maybe even third base sometimes compared to where you are, where um, not only are you not on first base, you're at the plate with three with two strikes. Well, and he, he mentioned something that I kind of forgot about, but when I was doing pipeline work, you're right. You see the same people over and over again. And so when you go out to see them, they're not like, now tell me about this easement thing you're talking about. They're like, oh, I know you guys. I've dealt with you before. I have three attorneys. Like they're, these are not people, like it's a, weird situation. You just encounter the same families or the same people or the same trust or the same companies over and over again. Right. About the the only time, if we get lucky, we're in, uh, and this is where all the due diligence and the research and the public relations work up front, the public official relations work uh, that needs to be done up front, that you're in a community where folks are related to somebody or have good friends who work in the oil and gas business. Now that's occasionally run into it. Some of the most difficult landowners I've ever dealt with 
are people who are retired executives of oil and gas companies. <laughs> oh, gosh. Because guess what they did with all those stock options and all that money Hello. that they made? They went and bought ranches. <laughs> and they bought ranches that happened between happened to be between point A and point B. Right. And you sit right. down with them, and I know you, I'm not going to say preach, but talked about wrapping yourself in the property rights uh, mantra. Right. All of a sudden, they become the biggest property right advocates <laughs> ever. And I'm like... <laughs> You were the head of a company that laid thousands of miles of pipeline. Yeah, like, hold on, buddy. <laughs> Wait a second. Well, I will tell you this. After having uh, practiced eminent domain for 15 or so years exclusively for the condemning authority side, I will tell you, it's a completely different feeling when it happens to you as opposed to when you're handling a case. When it's your property... Even like my house, they were just going to, they were going to bring water and sewer. I was on a public well and I was on a septic tank and they were going to acquire the property. And I'm looking at the setbacks and thinking, oh, you're going to ruin my house. You're going to yell, not in my backyard. I said, not in my backyard. I bet. And then they did it anyway. Was it in your backyard? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And it was actually one of my clients who was doing the project. So I didn't really have much to say about it. And I did (laughs) not negotiate the acquisition at all. I'm just like, okay, whatever you want to pay me. We're good. We're good. Hey, infrastructure junkies, if you enjoy this podcast, then I've got a tip for you. Check out the Eminent Domain podcast with our good friend, Clint Schumacher. Clint is an eminent domain attorney in Texas, and he's hosted the Eminent Domain podcast since 2017, so he's been at it a lot longer than we have. Clint will really get down in the weeds with outstanding guests about legal trends and hot legal issues in the field of eminent domain. Check him out on Apple. Or simply Google the Eminent Domain Podcast and you'll find him there. I'll see you over there on the Eminent Domain Podcast with Clint Schumacher. Hey, I think it's time for a little game. Okay. Uh oh. Tom, listen. I've heard I've heard you're a pretty good sport. You want to play a little game with us? Uh, is this one of those where you get to be the judge, jury, yeah. and executioner? That's yeah, that's correct. Okay, I've heard you say that before. If that's the case, why is Dave here? Well, he's got to push the buttons and stuff. So, okay. You know. All right. All right. Just All right. Make sure. Go ahead. We're going to play a little game called over under push. Right. Okay. I'm going to give you three items and you have to tell me whether these items are overrated, underrated, or eh, it's just a push. They're aptly rated. And I will tell you one of the rules of the game is that you're going to tell me your opinion and that's cool. But then I'll tell you whether or not your opinion is correct. You're the judge. Yeah. So he seems to be on board with this game. All and, right. And the appellate court, apparently. That's correct. <laughs> there's the no, there's no right here. of appeal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to tell you the three things first and we'll go item by item. Okay. okay? Number one, I can't even say this with a straight face to him. <laughs> Number one, Texas bourbon. Number two, the Houston Astros. And number three, Lucchese boots. All right. Okay. So let's go back to number one, Texas bourbon. Overrated, underrated, or it's a push. And does that even exist? It does exist. It's overrated. But I buy it occasionally, mainly because I like the label or I like the little package that it's in. It's usually something looks like the Lone Star flag for the state of Texas. I buy it out of sentimental value. Okay. You know what? You're right on that. And I think I'm only saying that because... I got duped into buying a uh, a bourbon gift basket at a silent auction. And then when I opened it, it was quote unquote, Texas bourbon. And I was like, I was thinking it was going to be like Weller or something. And it was Texas bourbon. So, all right, I'm going to go with, uh, yes, you were correct on that. Okay. Number two, 
the Houston Astros? Oh boy, you don't know how much of that is a loaded question for me on a personal level, but I think they are, if I'm just looking at them in, um, since the scandal, probably it's an under. I think it's an under. I know you're in Texas Ranger territory. All right. You know what? That, play a negative sound of some sort, please. Boom. Yeah. Tom, let's... Let's get serious oh, for a minute. That, did you record that at every home game, every visiting game that, that the Astros had on the road? Yeah, that's you're incorrect. It's actually they are overrated and they always have been. I was okay? I was going to bang a trash can just to. You know. <laughs> All right. Finally, Lucchese boots. That's a great one. I actually think that, and, and I own a bunch of them. And Dave, you're going to remember at that boot shop in Austin. I, I, stole, I remember this. I stole a pair from Ross. Ross and I were looking at Black Cherry Cayman. Beautiful. You, came, you stole them from Ross? Well, Ross was looking at Tell them, the story. Tell the story. we were both looking at them and said, well, let's go get a price on this. And I'm not sure Ross had ever been in a boot store before, <laughs> but we're, and it was a great store there on South Congress. And but we go up and we get the price. And I told the, the clerk, I said, I think I'll buy those. <laughs> and Ross was like, what the, what just happened? Right. Yeah. And I love them. They're great. But, and Ross, if you're listening, they're great boots. Thank and, you. And, and, and too to, bad you missed out, Ross. To fill out the story, Ross and Tom had the same foot size. And it was the only pair on the shelf. And yes. Ross loved them. He still brings that up <laughs> to this day. My favorite boots I've ever owned are Cayman's, Lucchese's. So yeah. I, you're, you're right. I would say, although they're getting a lot of pressure from Tacova, you familiar with the Tacova yeah, brand I've heard out of Boston? Uh, our family's now buying some of those boots. They're very reasonably priced, exotic skins, and they're going you know, with brick and mortar shops all over. Uh, great product, great price. But I think Luke Casey is still an under. I think it's a quality boot. Uh, Fantastic. First of all, he's three for three. And did you want to say something about Luke? Yeah, I do. I do. I own one pair of Lucchese's. And I bought that pair 12 years ago here in Scottsdale at the ALI-CLE conference in a boot shop in Old Town, Scottsdale. And they're just like the day I bought them. They're like a John Wayne... I love them with the square toe. They're wonderful. They're some of the most comfortable shoes that I own. I've had them for 12 years, and they're practically new out of the box when they're shined. That is so awesome. That's great. Hey, over-under push is usually just three items. I'm going to add a little bonus one that we didn't talk about ahead of time, and that is Boy. Texas Tech University basketball. <laughs> awesome. I mean, they are, I think they're, they're one of the, maybe the greatest basketball program in, in NCAA history, as far as I you know what? Tell. He's four for What's four. What's happening yep. in this He's room four right four now? four for four, and you can keep your and coach. He went to UT. You, you know, Tom is a, you know double, is a double grad from UT. I think I probably actually shed an actual wet tear dripping down my cheek when Beard left to go to you guys, and you can have him. <laughs> but, well, we're, we're doing just fine. Kristen, I'm, I'm going to just tell you this. I want to thank you for being such a gracious host because <laughs> you did not ask me. I thought you were going to ask me about Texas football. And no, I was just going to go throw myself dare. into the nearest, you know, oncoming 18-wheeler. <laughs> is Charlie Strong still coaching you? The, or ghost, what's, what's the ghost of Charlie Strong. Is that let, what me, it is? let me tell you a little something. Listen, I don't know when this episode is going to air. Probably this will have already happened, so I don't want to smack talk in case this goes down badly for my team. But do oh, you know... Boy that the Texas Tech fan base got the code for the season ticket holders for the February 3rd UT versus Texas Tech game, and we bought out the arena 
it's going to be like a Texas Tech home game because somebody shared the UT oh season ticket gosh. code with the Texas Tech fan base. And Ric Flair is going to be there emceeing the evening. So oh my gosh. that could be a crazy night of Big 12 basketball, and I can't wait. You think you can hook me up with some tickets? Let's see what I can do. I just assumed you all had a suite, man. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you hook me lawyer. up with tickets. You hook me up. <laughs> well, uh, I will neither admit or deny uh-huh. that we have a suite. <laughs> That's a story for another day. But yeah. Okay. Well, you killed it, and your answer about Texas Tech basketball was the most correct answer that's ever been answered on over under push. So give them a round of applause and let's move on. Okay. All right. I, I have my own stories about Texas tech basketball. We are not interested when in they any lost of that. To the Virginia Cavaliers in the national championship. A couple how are those Cavs doing? How are the, who's doing this year? Who has a championship and who doesn't? Who's who has a championship and who doesn't? Okay. Next topic, Mr. Forstier. Yes. <laughs> Land acquisition and eminent domain litigation, funny and horror stories. From the pipeline perspective, what do you have for us today? So one of my favorite stories, I can only really talk about it with any intelligence because of my wife's from Ohio. Okay, so let me set the, the bar there. I get a call one day, we're putting a pipeline in Southeast Texas, a client is, and they've got a survey crew out there. I get a call from the client says, the landowner has invoked the White Castle doctrine. I'm sorry. <laughs> the white, Crappy burgers white and fries? White Castle, like the mini, the, the White Yeah, the ca- little okay. sliders, right. like sliders before yeah. sliders were cool. And I'm listening to this, and I'm like, I had heard of White Castle from my wife because she went to school at Miami of Ohio and Southern Ohio by Cincinnati, and that's where I think that's where White Castle is very popular. I went to like, Indiana, and White Castle was a very big okay. deal in Indiana. Right, so yeah. big Midwest deal. And so I'm like, what is he doing? Like on his front porch throwing sliders at our surveyors? <laughs> well, no, he had brandished a shotgun. This was a time when y'all remember there was a stand your ground story out of Florida mm-hmm. where somebody prevailed on that defense of, right. and that yeah. ties into the castle doctrine. So all the landowner knew, he had heard of the castle doctrine and he confused it with the white castle <gasps> doctrine. No, And the, the, the really crazy thing was, so I've got a landowner invoking the wrong doctrine, threatening our surveyors with shotgun. And we have a restraining order from a judge, from a local judge to the landowner saying, don't interfere with the process. And I call up the sheriff's department and long story short, I find out later that the sheriff was not getting along with the judge politically. So the sheriff, the last thing he was going to do was enforce the judge's restraining order. But the best part of this that you'll really enjoy, Dave, is a landowner hired a lawyer. And about the time I get the call about the White Castle doctrine, I get an email from the lawyer. It says, I am representing Mr. Please be advised. I'm making my appearance. I'm representing the landowner. And I'm I'm like, okay, great. And about 45 minutes later, I get an email that says, I am no longer representing (laughs) Mr. (laughs) So-and-so. And I'm like, God, this is so bizarre. And in fact, that lawyer will probably be at this conference. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And he's a great lawyer. And, and he demonstrated it by withdrawing immediately because I later found out from the sheriff's deputy when we have the contempt hearing, oh. the enforced restraining order, that when she gets involved, she talks to the landowner and said, well, who advised you to, and when he said, it's not White Castle, it's Castle, doctor. Well, who advised you to do that? He said, my lawyer, oh. and his name is such and such. <laughs> 
Oh. So the sheriff's deputy calls the lawyer and says, did you advise your client to come out to the front porch with a shotgun in the face of a restraining order? And that's what led to the, I am no longer representing. Oh, my. And we're done here. <laughs> and scene. And scene. Oh, so, my. So the the other story I, I like, Sharon, it goes, it's up actually, uh, Kristen, just west of you over north of Abilene. Now, don't you have Rick's I grew up in Abilene. Yeah. Yes, sir. So you know Anson. Born and raised. You know Anson, Texas. Of course Texas. I do. Okay, yeah. and you know the phrase, no dancing in Anson, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> So we were putting in a, a crude pipeline from Midland, really heading east, coming through that area, and then eventually heading actually down to Clint Schumacher's territory down to Corsicana. Sure. Actually, where there's a big hub down there, pipeline hub. It had to go through whatever that county is that Anson is in. And I know y'all had an episode talking about the importance of good public relations mm-hmm. you know, a program, a plan, and management. So we go up there. I'm in front of the judge. I need to get survey access restraining orders. You know, telling the landowner, don't interview, don't interfere with this process, please. So I'm sitting there with the judge. You know, by now, y'all know I'm a double Texas burn orange nut. My judge is a Texas A&M Aggie. Oh, no. <laughs> You're sunk. And my local counsel from Abilene is saying, Please don't talk to him about being from Texas. Whatever you do, he's a big, every Aggie's a big Aggie, right? Every Aggie is a big Aggie. Every Aggie is a big Aggie. That's true. I have two nieces that are Aggies and I love them to death and they're big Aggies. So he's looking at me, he said, Tom, we had a big power project come through this, one of the big Cres lines to move wind power out of uh, the Panhandle, out of West Texas. Came through this county and I told that electric company lawyer that we were going to have a meeting in my courtroom. And I wanted him to invite every landowner that was being impacted by this project. And we were going to have, I was ordering a public meeting in my courtroom. And of course, I'm sitting in my chair and I'm, I just want to like slide underneath <laughs> oh the desk. God. I'm like, if we have a public meeting on this pipeline project, I know what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, It's going to be bad. And I, I'm looking at him, I'm looking at my local counsel and the judge says, and we are not going to do that in this pipeline project. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I, and I, and my local counsel gave me good advice. He just keep your mouth shut. He said, everybody came in here. Every landowner came into my courtroom. And after that, whenever they had a problem with that project, they didn't call the electric company. They called me. <laughs> <laughs> he said, so we are never having a public hearing on an infrastructure project again. So, well, he got what he deserved. He got what he deserved. Hey, there's something we talked about, some issues that we can talk about. And there's one thing that you said, and I'm dying to know more about this as a Motown fan. And that is Aretha Franklin and landowner relations. Aretha Franklin, landowner relations. So I'm older than you guys are, and I know y'all have- Not by that much. You're not much older Uh, than uh, Kristen. uh, Oh my God. (laughs) So you're much older than Dave. Yeah, so this goes to the, and I think we have a slide on this in our right-of-way agent orientation or training uh, PowerPoint deck, and it's R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? Dealing with people with respect, and and we really try and drill it, you know, take it down to the base level. When you're sitting with people, if you're lucky enough and they invite you into their home and you're sitting at the kitchen table or the dining room table or whatever, I want you to think that you are talking to your parents or more importantly to your grandparents. And how are you going to mm. talk to them? How are you mm-hmm. going to explain this to them? And I want you to be helpful and I want you to be cordial. Obviously, 
somebody invokes the White Castle doctrine, get the, <laughs> get the hell out. <laughs> get the hell out. But and the whole concept of respect and dealing and treating people with respect is, to me, the, it's the golden rule in what we do. We, we have a, I always say we have a privilege. Our clients have the privilege, particularly if they're private entities. Dave, I know you represent a lot of public entities. If you're a private entity and the legislature is giving you the power of eminent domain, that is a privilege, and you need to exercise that privilege with all due respect to the people that are going to be impacted by what you're doing. Tom, I love that. And it's such a simple thing to just keep in your mind. But I, as someone who does primarily transportation work and relocation, I think about that all the time. Like, how would I want my parents to be treated? And I think that across the board is very valuable to all of us. Because we all get the calls from our parents who mm-hmm. say who, something's happening and whatever it may be. And in particular, if you're a lawyer, they think that you can solve all legal problems and we really can't, but, and they're confused and they don't understand. And most people, I mean, we're involved in the projects. We're living the projects, right? Right. We're living with relocation issues and managing that part of the project, which is really important and protective of the landowners. But I think it's just important. It's not a level playing field. I mean, Dave, it goes back to your earlier point. It is not a level playing field. Mm-hmm. We, we have the ability to close a real estate transaction when somebody says no. Right. That's right. a huge power. It's a huge power. You know, so. Yeah. So, Tom, one other thing I want to ask you about before we get too close to the end of the episode, valuation and compensation theories and trends from where you sit. This is always hot at any seminar, at any conference, anything like that. Like, what's the next thing? And for a while, you know about this, for a while, Ross Green and I were were litigating some inverse condemnation cases with novel theories. We litigated some relocation cases with novel theories. And so down where you are in the pipeline industry, what are you seeing? So uh, I think we're starting, and Clint Schumacher referred to this when y'all talked to him, we're starting to see for pipeline easements a transition back to a utility corridor valuation. Clint said it really well when he said, look, there's so many pipelines out there, and what do our clients want to do? They want to build a pipeline next to another pipeline right. because we're going to do that landowner a favor and put that new pipeline next to the existing one. And You're that, welcome. <laughs> and, that, and it's smart to do it. I mean, frankly, it's smart. Minimize the impact, minimize the footprint, encumbrance footprint on the property, and there is, I know I'm aware of one case that I believe is at the Texas Supreme Court on point dealing with utility corridor valuation theories. It's actually a really hard thing to prove. There are existing corridors, Christian, there are well-known established corridors and they get valued differently and appraised differently by real estate appraisers and MAI and all that appraisal institute. They all, I mean, they talk about it. It's a legitimate theory but you have to meet pretty high thresholds to qualify for having, for basically declaring that the, the highest and best use of your property is for a utility corridor. That used to be really popular about 10 years ago, but then we had some significant rulings in Texas dealing with, ironically, a CO2 pipeline, which of course, mm. you know, carbon capture and sequestration and what have you, that all of a sudden... The money to be made was starting about 11 years ago. The money, the upside would be to argue that there wasn't a valid public purpose or public use to the pipeline. These are private entities. All the pipelines are private, right? Privately owned, legislatively delegated, power government domain. The question is, 
are you moving product that's owned by uh, somebody other than yourself or an affiliate and that's going to legitimately be uh, put to a valid public use. And for the last 11 or 12 years, we've been battling that. And those are bet the project arguments. Those aren't, those aren't valuation arguments. Those are bet the project. Because if you don't have a valid public purpose or public use for the pipeline, the court's going to dismiss the case. But how could there not be a public purpose or public use for a pipeline? Isn't it by its very nature for public use? You're carrying product for the general public. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a kilo related idea when you think about it. You don't want a company coming to you if you're a landowner and saying, I'm going to put a pipeline across your property and I'm going to move my own product or the product of an affiliate and I'm going to transport it to my own facilities downstream or my affiliates facilities downstream. And you're right. All of that might just be the way the commercial thing is set up. That's how it's set up. Mm-hmm. And it's all going to end up at a refinery. I mean, people are producing oil and gas because they want it to be purchased and sold and consumed, right? And yeah, there's going to be a public use ultimately. But we had a case about 11 years ago. Company was moving its own product created, generated by an affiliate and selling it to another affiliate for injection into oil and gas wells for enhanced recovery. And when you look at that optically, it's just one big company taking care of itself. Right. But that changed all the rules about like common carriers and such, right? That case? Exactly. Okay. I remember that. That that was the Denberry Green decision from, uh, actually, we we will be celebrating the 10-year anniversary of that decision in a month. Has it been 10 years? 10 years. Oh my gosh. 10 years. So you know how this goes. How does public use tie into valuation and compensation? Well, the better lawyers, the more sophisticated landowners will say, I'm going to put a lot of pressure on you and I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to see all of your contracts. I want to see all of your agreements, third-party agreements. Who's buying this? Who are you selling this to? Right. And where are you getting it from? Right. And do you have any affiliated relationship with any of these entities? And we're going to take a look under the TP or whatever phrase you want to use, or you can pay me what I'm asking for my client and we'll go away and we won't be a problem for you. (laughs) That's fascinating. And that's very novel from where I sit. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's just the nature of representing private entities who have been delegated the sovereign power of eminent domain. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I had a judge one time say, you know, states have uh, essentially their own equivalent of, of FOIA, what we see at the federal level for uh, mandatory mm-hmm. disclosure of public information. In Texas is the Texas Public Information Act. And I had a judge say one time, well, wait a second. Now, your client is a common carrier and you have the power movement domain. You know what? I think I'm on a, this was a discovery fight, like what documents need to be produced. And private entities have a lot of sensitivity over proprietary information. Their commercial agreements Mm -hmm. are the most sensitive documents they have. Yeah. Judge says, if I have to order the county and the city and and sometimes the state to turn over documents under our Public Information Act, why can't I order your client to do it? (laughs) I'm like, well, because there's no statute that says that you can. (laughs) There's that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tom, before we get to the end of the episode, one thing that you and I have 
bonded over during a couple of these conferences is bourbon. Mm. <laughs> and I, I am fascinated by the bourbon industry, and you were very kind enough to forward to me a gift, which was a book called Pappy Land. And I believe the author was named Wright Thompson, who's a graduate of Mizzou, where my cousin graduated. And it was a fascinating book about Pappy Van Winkle. I just started that book. Pappy, yeah, Pappy yeah, Van Winkle great. Bourbon yeah. and Julian Van Winkle, who's currently, I think, running the company. Just fascinating. Human interest story, bourbon story, all of the above. So a couple of questions related to bourbon. Number one, Buffalo Trace. I used to get it for $19 a bottle. What's the BFD? Well, I guess because of their relationship with Julian, right, and the Van Winkle family, yeah, right, when he, I guess, reached a point in, in his life and bringing the, the family products and the family name, restoring the name and the reputation, as I understand it, from the book. I don't know if Buffalo Trace folks approached him. I think that's what worked out, but it was like, let's just joint venture, mm -hmm. and he was able to turn over a lot of the work and the burden of operating the distillery and putting out that great product that he puts out over to Buffalo Trace. Now, in terms of the, in my mind, personally, it's actually piqued my interest a lot in the Buffalo Trace product because when you read that book and you hear what Julian went through to, after his dad died, to try and rebuild yeah. the family business, and I think he's also a cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible, I mean, it is a rags to riches story with the burden of his grandfather, Happy, and his own father on his shoulders, right? I mean, he was either going to save it or that was the end of it. It was going to be the end of it. Right, right. And it was very close to the end a number of times. That's right. And I think even Julian Van Winkle would throw his hands up and be like, I don't understand why people pay so much money for my product. And and I think he has complained about that. And people have complained to him like, hey, I can't get your product or it costs too much money. And he said, it's not my fault. It doesn't cost that much money when it leaves my distillery. Right. right. It's the markup. Yeah. It's right. the markup by the, I, by the retailers. And know. it's such a great little American story. I mean, like I, even at the beginning when he's talking about being at the Derby with his triplet daughters and they're drinking Weller out of a salad dressing bottle. I mean, <laughs> like who is this guy? Yeah. I've well, enjoyed I, it so far. I, I remember the day we were in Austin and we yeah. were at that great little uh, restaurant there, not too far, I think from the, where the conference was being held called Moonshine. That is where we were. The ironic name, Moonshine. And they have their own little private kind of, uh, menu on bourbon. Right? Yep. Yep. And you taught me some things. I, and I owe you a lot for really, you, well, you and my oldest son, because uh, when, when he went off to college, he learned a lot about bourbon. Uh, but, <laughs> That's a good but in education. college, you're, lear you're learning about Jim Beam in college. <laughs> That's Maker's right. Mark. That's right. Uh, but you mentioned to me, and I didn't believe you at the time, even though you're a very good looking guy and very, very persuasive. You said the Van Winkles really like Weller. They're they're, they're, they have a preference for Weller. Well, I had just bought Dave like a $95, you know, shot of Pappy. <laughs> True story. And, and you had also said, always ask to look at the bottle, right? Yeah. When you order Pappy, always ask the waiter or waitress to bring you the bottle that they're pouring oh, it yeah. out of. All right. And the book talks a lot about all the fake product that's out there. 
So I'm like, you know, I'm going to treat Dave. This is a special occasion. And blah, blah, blah. I, why was it a special occasion? I'm just with a bu- at a what? bar with a buddy. You're, you're in moonshine. You're in God's country. You're I was in, in Austin. You're at the University exactly. of Texas. Okay. Cool place. And he says, you know, to be quite honest with you, Tom, really, he really liked Weller more. I look at the menu on Weller. It's like $12 a glass. <laughs> Could have saved you about 80 bucks, brother. <laughs> So now I love that. I love that book. And you know, Dave, I told you my wife gave me and our three sons a copy of that book for Christmas uh, just a couple of years ago, right after it came out. And the, the, my favorite, really, my favorite part of the book is the story about the relationship, the father son relationship, being the father of three sons and being blessed to have a dad who's 86 and still living and in better health than I am. And to have that relationship and to read what Wright Thompson was going through, Christian, he was having, at the time, having a daughter mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. way and he and his wife that's had right. you know, some issues with that. But to me, that's, I mean, I enjoy listening and hearing about and uh, reading about how the Van Winkle product came along, but I really love the generation to generation story. Yeah. Yeah. So completely agree. Thank you for sending me the book. I enjoyed it so much that I paid it forward to three other people, one of whom was my father, who's from Shelbyville, Kentucky, grew up in Shelbyville, where Woodford Reserve buys all of their corn from. It all comes from Shelbyville. And to a good friend in the International Right-of-Way Association, I sent a copy to Kristen because I thought she and her family, they like bourbon and they would enjoy it. And I think they've... Absolutely. yeah, Yeah. Had a good time with it. So Tom... Any parting words from a very experienced pipeline lawyer going forward? Are you a dinosaur or are you the first of a new trend? I think I'm the first of a new trend. I, I can just tell you, with, with like with our team and our group, uh, we've completely pivoted over into the public sector. And I've sent, sent you, shared some information with you about that. This is why I like the actually like the bi- bipartisan infrastructure bill. There's going to be a lot of infrastructure work to be done. It's going to keep lawyers busy. It's going to keep uh, right-of-way agents, relocate. I'm learning more about relocation, the Uniform Relocation mm-hmm. Act, than I ever thought I would. I wish I had, Christian, I wish I had known you about two months ago because I had to hire a relocation agent oh, yeah. on a very significant project. And I'm going to learn what it's like to represent governmental entities where their power of eminent domain is never, it's not, not usually challenged. It might, what might be challenged is how they exercise the power, but they got the power. They are the yeah. sovereign. Yep. So, and I think being nimble like that at all levels, lawyers, agents, surveyors, appraisers, understanding how government contracts are issued and RFQs and RFPs and, and how you can be put on an approved list, but. Maybe that's all you get. You're just on the approved list. Right? Congratulations. Welcome to the club, Tom. Don't, don't yeah. take it. Don't take it personally. That's you know? right. Uh, Your but, phone may never ring. Uh, by I, the I way. think that's. I think that's what the, the future holds uh, for all of us that are in this business and are fortunate enough to be in this business. It's great. I, I enjoy everything that I do. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Forestier from Winstead PC in Houston, Texas. Thank you, you heard Tom. it here first. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. So, Mimi. What do you like better, Infrastructure Junkies or the Eminent Domain Podcast? This is such an easy question. I can't believe you would ask me this. Clint Schumacher is way better than you guys. What? Yeah.